You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more information about the variety of topics covered on the show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider becoming a monthly donor to support my work and allow it to continue to go on and be free for all to access for as low as 99 cents a month. Visit the support the show link on my site's homepage for more information. Hello everybody and welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. On today's episode of Stay Tuned, the series of episodes where I talk about stories less directly related to K-Pop but still related that have to do with the music industry as a whole. Five big stories in that aspect today to talk about. Let's just dive right into story number one, which is an update on the mixed state of live music. Q1 results are in, meaning that companies have revealed their data for the first quarter of 2021. Live Nation has revealed, through their Q1 data, they have already lost $300 million just in 2021, just in this quarter of the year, but they have already booked twice the amount of shows they had in 2022 scheduled as the number booked in 2019. Twice as many shows booked, but for the time being, still in a financial crunch in a way. Another interesting detail, though, is that they're doing quite well in the stock market still, which is the upteenth example of how stock market values do not directly translate to financial situation in real life. Live Nation's shares are at a higher value, not of all time, but at the highest value since the pandemic started. Signs that there is a good economic recovery on the horizon for companies like Live Nation. It's still unclear how much this mixed data about current losses mixed with a long-term positive economic outlook will affect how long Live Nation continues to do things like layoffs. That is less certain than Live Nation's future in terms of shareholders and stuff. Despite herd immunity looking like it may not ever happen in the USA, Fall concert tours are already being announced, and I think that's because there's not full certainty about ability to fill up an entire venue by fall yet, but there's enough certainty and enough of a desire and desperation, an understandable desperation, for these artists to get back out there and book gigs again. What's happening a bit gradually now, I think, is going to suddenly be a mad dash that artists right now who are announcing their fall tours are trying to get ahead of. I think there will be a mad crush of artists who are like, take our chances, let's do this. So a ton of fall concerts and festivals have released their lineups. Now, do I think K-pop will be here in fall 2021? That I'm less sure about because of the international aspect of them coming here. After all, right now, Australia's concert scene is popping again, but it's pretty local. So if you're from Australia or New Zealand, you get to play there because they have their travel bubble now. They also have had really low community transmission, actually close to zero for many months. So they are able to have live music again for more local acts. So I do think K-pop may be not till 2022 really touring in the USA again. I do think though, if let's say K-pop did come back, live K-pop shows did come back to America, to North America in fall of this year. I think they'll have to be big artists, but not too big. So, for example, if it's an act like Pentagon where you play at a concert hall, 
So not even a theater size venue, but below that amount. They're not going to take that risk and tour here if they're not guaranteed full capacity because they need money from every ticket holder to not just break even. And so that that's just a little bit riskier for them to try to do when we don't know what the social distancing guidelines will be. So artists who are bigger, who might perform at a theater or an arena, they might decide to tour here because it's still worth it financially, even if the venue is not full to capacity. But then you think about a group that fills stadiums, like BTS, they have a huge international group of cast and crew that puts on that show. The people who put on BTS shows are from every country. So all of this is to say that I think there is a very low possibility of K-pop tours in the USA, I think, before 2022. And it won't be BTS-sized groups. But maybe Seventeen, that would be wonderful. Or another group that fills an arena, but not necessarily a stadium. Maybe this past year I've just trained my brain to not expect too much and stay cautiously optimistic, as opposed to just unguardedly optimistic. It's quite a contrast to England, which recently held a music festival where attendees intentionally did not wear masks or social distance for the sake of what they call an experiment. It's a real-world science experiment to see if they will get COVID at the concert. In an interesting contrast, Australia, where there's less community transmission by a lot, they decided to cancel Blues Fest this year after just one reported COVID case in the area. And this last-minute cancellation was out of an abundance of caution, prevent another outbreak, but some people worry they jumped the gun on that, especially because that decision will cost Australia approximately $200 million to cancel this annual event. So it's interesting because Australia is extra cautious, and so they've been able to bring back live music already, but with more caveats, like we're canceling this thing the night before if one case shows up nearby. England also brought back live music, but did so in a very throw-caution-to-the-wind way, at least in one case, under the guise of an experiment. So definitely Europe and Australia are interesting places to keep tabs on if you're curious about live music coming back to life, what that's looking like. One other thing I just want to point out real quick is that Australia may also have live music back partly due to bouncing back. They haven't had to shutter venues or anything to the same extent as some other countries because throughout the pandemic there have been a lot of people behind the scenes lobbying the Australian government and then they won $125 million in government funds to help the ailing live entertainment industry. So that's a variable to consider as well. Switching gears to talk about South Korea for story number two, what are considered the traditional big three companies of K-pop are SM, YG, and JYP Entertainment. And they have all been considered blue chip companies, which basically means that they have to have over 50 billion won in sales, they have to have a term net profit over 3 billion won. There are a lot of specific financial requirements they have to meet before they qualify as a blue chip company. So they all have that impressive title. Or did, because Korea Exchange just changed their categorization of SMNYG to just mid-sized companies. So JYP is the only one of the big three that is still a blue-chip company. In 2020, SM Entertainment actually had a net loss of over 80 billion won, which is over 71 million US dollars. They lost a lot of advertisers and money, 
thanks to things like their food and beverage franchises losing out on customers due to the pandemic. Meanwhile, YG's profits have dipped for two years in a row now due to just declining revenue from music. JYP still has the blue chip status despite having the lowest average sales of the big three companies the past three years. Not to get too much into the economic jargon, but how I would summarize this is that SM Entertainment is seeing a net loss due to the trade-off that comes with both creating more subsidiaries that you're in charge of, spreading out the money in that way, and investing a lot in things like food and drink franchises that really took a hit last year. YG Entertainment has also seen the downside of creating all these sub-companies under you. The subsidiary companies then can take away some of that revenue and cost money to keep funding and owning. So YG and SM Entertainment have both seen profits down. JYP, on the other hand, they don't have as much subcategorization. Their structure of their company is just a lot different. And so they get to keep more of the money, but that also means they're not trying different lucrative ventures. Each of the three companies is missing out on and seizing certain opportunities. JYP the past three years has had average sales the lowest among the big three companies, but they have been increasing their profits the past three years. So just because by comparison's sake an average amount of sales looks relatively small does not mean the net profits can also look relatively small. It's not always the case that way. That's the most simplified explanation I can give you about what's happening here, is that these companies are just seeing the pros and cons of their past economic moves. So it'll be interesting going forward if JYP chooses to pursue SM and YG's paths, but I think they'll just stick to their blue chip status and use it as kind of a badge of honor. Moving on to big story number three. Spotify's quarter one data is here, as is Snap Inc., which owns Snapchat. Spotify's first quarter data includes the fact that they have now 208 million free listeners and 158 million paying listeners, which is a growth of 21% from this time last year. They currently have 356 million active users monthly, and that is a growth in monthly listeners of 24%. So What's more of a surprise is that Snapchat is still popular. Maybe TikTok replaced it in terms of what people are talking about, what's become a part of people's lives and social media culture, but not necessarily. They had a 66% revenue surge this quarter compared to 2020. The revenue also recently hit $769.6 million, and they still have currently around 280 million average daily users. So don't count Snapchat out just yet. Also some interesting new Spotify data, the top 10 list has been revealed for the most popular artist to listen to while studying, based on which artist showed up on specifically designated for studying Spotify playlists. 10th place is Ariana Grande, 9th place Thomas Newman, 8th place Harry Styles, 7th place John Williams, 6th place Ed Sheeran, 5th place Mozart, 4th place Billie Eilish, third place Taylor Swift, second place Hans Zimmer, and first place BTS with 905 study playlists including them. So that doesn't even include playlists that aren't necessarily just for studying. That is interesting to me and a little surprising given how for years and years now people have talked about the actual psychological benefits of 
listening to Mozart as you study. But again, you gotta put this into cultural context, because today the Mozart stands are real quiet on Twitter. The BTS stands are using Spotify. This also made me think of this other study I was looking at from Nielsen Data and Spotify India. By the way, I'll link to the study on my weekly newsletter as always. It showed that Spotify listeners are almost 40%, 40%, more likely to listen to an artist when that serves as a way they feel connected to that artist. And further compounding that point, the study also showed that Spotify users are 15% more likely to follow a favorite artist on social media if they listen to them and subscribe to them on Spotify. So what that means is that people follow and feel a sense of connection with these artists, then check them out on Spotify after checking them out on social media or vice versa. It's a positive PR feedback loop between feeling a sense of they connect to you, they resonate with you music-wise, and feeling that closeness to them and desire to listen to more of their music amplified after following them online. I think BTS and Magic Shop make for the perfect example here. You check out the song Magic Shop on Spotify, then you follow them on social media and read articles and stuff online, all about BTS talking about the inspiration for that song, then maybe you check out the book it's based on, and you get deeper into that world, which makes you want to re-listen to the song on Spotify, add it to more playlists, share it with others. That leads to them following them on social media, and it's a back and forth where you feel connected to them through both apps. Now this type of data is just a list-based thing, so easy to calculate. Not this type of data, but other types of data might not be as easy to find going forward, because in April last year, Spotify actually stopped sharing regional data with Nielsen. So let's say you're Sony Music and you want to map out the most strategically sensible route for your artist to go across the country promoting a new album. Where to tour, what local radio stations to target, things like that. You use market-level data, aka regional data, to figure that out. So if you don't have that data, you can still use very specific data. But you have to do a lot more of the legwork yourself because Nielsen would take and aggregate a whole bunch of different factors, putting them together in one easy-to-understand data point. And so all that aggregation work is gone, the middleman is gone, as long as this deal is no longer happening. So it'll be interesting going forward how that affects touring, and it may not at all. There are so many other levels of finding data about where to tour, who should be popular to play on the radio locally, all that kind of stuff. But it could be impacted by this change. Last update for today. There is a new music chart coming. Yes, another one. But this one's really interesting. It's between Billboard and Twitter. And it's going to be called the Billboard Hot Trending Chart. So it's going to have a trending list of songs, not at all based on what people are listening to, but based on what they're talking about online. It could become the most disliked music video on YouTube in their history or whatever, but it could top the Billboard Hot Trending chart. It could get a number one, basically, thanks to this new chart, because it's just about online buzz. It will also be different because it refreshes every 24 hours. So instead of like the Billboard charts where you get weekly updates about what's number one, here you'll get them daily. Basically, it's the trending on Twitter page, but for music. I think this is an interesting idea. I'm not sure I love it, just because I haven't seen it play out yet. Maybe it's not exactly the positive impact they want it to be. But I definitely think 
K-pop had to be on their minds when they made this decision, because if you have spent any time on Twitter especially, but any social media in the past two, three years, there's no way you don't see K-pop trending topics on Twitter all the time, if not once a day, several times a week. Doesn't matter if you're only in video game Twitter or sports Twitter or general I'm just here to post once a month Twitter, you will see K-pop trending and hear about it. You can't avoid it, it's just always part of the online discourse now. K-pop will dominate this new chart, I'm sure, and that will be interesting to see, because will that tick people off and actually dissuade some people who are already just stereotyping and brushing off the K-pop industry and now wanting to listen to the music? Will it further just make them decide, yeah, it's not worth it, this is too overhyped? Or will it do the opposite and get more people to say, all right, I'll see what all the fuss is about? I don't know, but it could have an impact on those conversations, and so that will be interesting to see play out. That's the latest on the music world. More news coming later this week, as well as just some more fun topics. So stay tuned for more on my show. Thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all again very soon.